Hello and welcome to Life Stamps, stories from here and there. Tonight we have an interview from a person named Brandon, who's a chef owner of a food cart called Mumbo Gumbo here in Portland, specializing in Cajun Creole cuisine. And he's been in Portland now for about three years. And so we'll pull out all the details about his personal life stamp after a word from my sponsor. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome this week to Life Stamps. Here I've got my friend Brandon. He's a chef owner of food cart here in Portland called Mumbo Gumbo. Hey, how's everybody doing? Tyson, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me today. Uh, let's get started. Why don't you tell me um, basically when you moved to Portland, what, your, what was your journey like to get to Portland? Um, Portland was a long roundabout way to get here, man. It started off, um, didn't even think about Portland, really. It never really crossed my radar until about three years ago, I believe, about 2017 or 18. My nephew moved up here to do some cooking, and he just told me about the city, said how much he liked it, some of the cool parts about it, um, the food scene, stuff like that, because he is a cook himself, so he knows all about the food scene in the area. And, um, me doing restaurants my whole life, basically, literally since I was been born. I was born into a restaurant family, started cooking, um, dishwashing at 12, cooking at 14. So that's all I do. Um, and once he told me about the food scene out here, over the last 10 years prior to that, I've been kind of formulating this concept of mumbo gumbo and, you know, what I wanted to do with it and what it was going to be exactly when it was all finished. And I felt like this was a good opportunity to come out and test the waters. Oh, that's great. So where all have you lived in culinary-wise, starting your culinary career, what did um, you say? I've most, most of it was early years was all Sacramento, California. Um, eventually, I spread my wings a little bit into higher management as a general manager, district manager um, in the Bay Area. And that's where I was the seven years prior to moving up to Portland. Um, and then I've been here for the last two. Oh, that's great. So um, what got you into Creole cooking since um, you're a California guy? It's kind of a family thing. Not necessarily, necessarily Creole specific, although we do do Creole dishes. The family, um, just as some background, my family owns the oldest black-owned um, black restaurant in Sacramento, two of them called the stagecoach and those places have been around about 50 years and we've always specialized in southern style breakfast so fried catfish and eggs grits chicken fried pork chops biscuits and gravy um those those types of things so southern cooking in general is what i've always been attracted to and, and find myself interested in um, so that's great so and then you're talking about uh sacramento perspective wise where the stagecoaches are those over by like the riverboat on the river sacramento river no they're in the deep south there's one in deep south sacramento off of florin road um that's the original stagecoach which was opened by my grandfather originally in 78 now my dad has has been running that since 94 and then there's one in a suburb south of sacramento called El grove which is my uncle's and he's had that since 79. wow that's crazy so yeah you basically just been growing up in a oh, family yeah. of chefs that's <laughs> what we do my my grandfather that's all he did was cook before um you know way back 30s 40s, um, Jim Crow South and stuff, blacks were pretty much delegated to certain jobs and positions, so he started working at like 12 years old on the railroads back then in the in, in the uh, culinary cart, 
in, in, gotcha. in the kitchen car and learn there. Then he joined the military during World War II and Korea, and he was a cook in both of those wars. Um, eventually, he came out to a station in Fort Ord, Monterey, California. And um, that's where he became, he got his first break. He became a manager of an old restaurant, which is now defunct due to its racist name, but it was called Sambo's. Oh, man. Crazy. <laughs> and, and, and it was crazy because it had, it, it had a little um, blackface like logo and stuff. It was crazy. My grandfather was a manager for that. He was a traveling manager. He would go and just cover other managers taking vacations and stuff like that. Um, eventually, he worked that into saving enough money to buy, um, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe he is the first black owner of a Denny's. He bought a Denny's franchise in the early 70s, I want to say 73 or 74. Okay. Which that got us out to Sacramento because he bought that franchise out there and uh, moved us to Sacramento or my dad and them to Sacramento. Um, so where were you guys before Sacramento then or, or like your family lineage? All so, over. So I mean, say. my grandfather's originally from Saint East St. Louis. Okay. Um, he ran all over and during World War II, after the war, he went to occupy Japan with the American forces. He met my grandmother, Japanese lady, brought her back with him um, when he was stationed in Fort Ord Seaside. And then that's where they pretty much spent most of their time between Seaside, Oakland area for, I don't know, the next 10, 15 years. And then from there... Sacramento, and then we've been Sacramento pretty much ever since. My mom's side of the family is all from Idaho, and they don't really deal with cooking or any of that type stuff. Okay, so yeah, then there is an offshoot that's not like culinary wizards of the, <laughs> of the, of the cultural traditions, if you will. No, I, I, man, I've been blessed, man. I mean, the, the, between my grandfather and my dad, I have learned from probably two of the people that I admire most in the food industry. Um, you know, I know a lot of people have heroes and uh, Ramsey or all these, you know, celebrity, celebrity chefs. chefs yeah. um, but my heroes are, are my dad and my grandfather because they taught me what I believe is the key to my success since I've opened up Mumbo Gumbo is that numbers, you don't worry about numbers. You don't worry about sales. You worry about good food, good service at a good price. Sales takes care of themselves when you focus on those things. Um, and I, over the years, man, I've really gotten disillusioned. I didn't realize how much I was learning from, from them until I went to go start work for the big box stores, you know, the big corporate chains. Oh, I worked yeah. for Five Guys. I worked for um, Smashburger as a general manager. I worked for um, Eric's Deli Cafe, which is a regional chain in the Bay Area as a regional manager. Um, and there you got production and there you, you you're constantly doing quarterly yes. reports but people aren't emphasizing on food or changing it up I imagine exactly. because they like to keep everything in a, in a formula that sells exactly I and see I, something like that. I get it as I grow now into the second store just growing into the second store I'm starting to see why they do some of these things uh, and I've always known why they do it, but I didn't know that, you know, that sometimes I was like, why are they doing it this way? But sometimes it's out of necessity. Some things are out of necessity, but so, I think they're, the focus from those big places is too much on the profit, you know, and, and obviously you're in business to make profit, but when you focus on the profit, then the things that create that create the impetus for profit, profit, good customer service, great food, those get left by the wayside. Um, so I don't like that approach. My dad and grandfather always taught me you focus on those, 
service food price and the, the money comes by itself. You don't even have to worry about that. Just focus on those three things, everything else comes together. So, okay, so now going back, so then you uh, are talking to your nephew and then you're like coming to help him with the mumbo gumbo, is that correct? Um, yes, well, he kind of mentioned to me, he knew what I wanted to do as far as the concept of mumbo gumbo. Sure. He knew, he, he knew I had told him what I wanted to do. He's been looking, you know, he's kind of been spinning his wheels, just cooking in different kitchens all over the place. And he really wanted to branch out and kind of do his own thing. Financially, he wasn't in a position to do it. I was barely in a position to do it, but I, I had a little something um, from my last job. When, when, when I quit, I got a nice severance package, which set me up, you know, squeeze into a, a food cart. I, sure. I squeezed in by the hair of my chinny chin chin. But this is Portland, <laughs> and you know, if there's a place where you're going to, you know, roll the dice with a food cart and do pretty good, I think it's going to be well, Portland. That was the whole draw of the city, man, <laughs> is know, that so. their laws are so lax out here as far as um, food carts and, and what the, um, the guidelines are, the licensing, stuff like that. In California, Unless you own a property or very extremely lucky and able to rent a parking spot from a somebody who owns their property, you are usually stuck in a mobile food cart and you have to, in the laws in California, in most cities, every two hours you have to move to a yeah, new location. Yeah, that's why I'm always hearing Californians talk about food trucks and not food carts because they can't stay permanent, it seems, or whatever. And, you know, so Californians, I guess, do more of like that thing where they follow people's like social media pages so they can kind of track the map of their favorite food truck and knowing when it's going to hit like let's say Pasadena or Malibu or whatever community they exactly. live in. Exactly, but right? the downside of that is every time you pick up and move, you're losing, you know what, an hour, maybe an hour and a half of business between, you know, if you have deep fryers, draining your deep fryer so they don't slosh around while you're moving, moving to a new location, refilling, refiring, you lose tons of hours. Don't get to build a relationship with your uh, local clientele either. Right, because you don't get to actually get to have a consistent local community base coming Correct. in to support you and stuff. And I love my state. You know, I love I love California. I'm a Californian through and through. But California is very hard for small business. If you're the only people who can really really do business in, in California is if you have a large bankroll. Or if you are the you're the big box stores or the big chains that have a lot of money behind them, um, licensing, um, environmental fees, um, all the stuff that goes into it is ridiculous. I mean, your building permits, they they will just charge you an arm and a leg. I mean, just getting into a food cart in California, unless you are extremely lucky, you're looking at probably almost a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I can imagine. To I mean, open that in Portland, I could open two brick and mortars for a hundred thousand dollars. California, crazy. I get one food cart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's surprising. I mean, I guess I never really think about it that way. But then again, I mean, I don't run my own business, but I, I never. I knew there was a reason why I never thought if the day comes that I do want to start my own business, California wasn't really on the radar. <laughs> and now you clarify that for me pretty well. Stay far away. Stay yeah. far away. Yeah. Um, no, Portland has been, when my nephew told me about it, he told me how the, the food cart scene is up here, that you know these restaurants, um, food carts are basically restaurants. They sit in one place all day, every day. People know where to find them, what the hours are. 
Um, and I came up, um, once I heard about that, then we got a line and started looking into how much it's gonna cost um, to rent a food cart instead of buy. Um, so I don't have to come out with $50,000 cash to sure. buy a food cart. Called a guy on Craigslist, hey, you got a, he had a cart for rent for $1,000 a month, fully loaded, all the equipment in there. So now I've cut I've cut fifty thousand down to my first payment of one thousand. Okay. To get in, then I then I paid my rent for my space. I think total was right around like seven thousand dollars to get in the business out here. That's ridiculously cheap. Ridiculously cheap. <laughs> I mean, because you know, with Portland and the inflation around here and everybody moving here now, it's like the average rent monthly rent now is about a thousand a month. So you're saying seven times that only just to get a business going. Yeah, that was like, complete. That was licensing, ridiculous. <laughs> first food order, I mean, um, a lot of extra equipment and smallwares, um, licensing, food, smallwares, um, lease on the cart, lease on the space, setting up all my utility accounts, right around $7,000, man. And I've been blessed. I, I made that and some over two years. I mean, I made my money back in probably like the first two months. Um, and I, I do say that just to I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about doing something or following the dream, I think they get scared, you know, and, and they're like, well, what if this, and the, the questions start to flow. Yeah, or if they're going to have an unhappy marriage, divorce with an investor or anything else, you know, going into something, you know, and, you know, they, there's all these, the what ifs, I mean, running your own business is, is the ultimate game of risk anyways, you know, so I think it, it has a lot to come down to. It does, but I think it's the way you have to look at it. Like, when I was sitting there, people would ask me that when I was tell, told my family, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go up to Portland and do my thing. And everybody was like, you sure, man? You got a pretty good job in the Bay Area. I was making, like, close to $100,000 in the Bay Area. Although, in the Bay Area, $100,000 is like living paycheck to paycheck. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all know what it's like there. I mean, that's a different uh, universe, but... <laughs> yes, but they all asked me, and I just said, look at it this way. I go up there for minimal investment, $7,000. If I succeed, I'm in a way better place than I am now. If I fail, I didn't forget all of my management experience. I can get a management job within a week if I fail. I'll be, and I'll be right back in the same boat that I was prior to opening this, only out $7,000. And in the two years I've been open, I've made that back. So I, I'm out nothing. I've gained yeah. a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the right risk for you to take. Yes, and I think people have to think about that when they do their thing. Is the worst case scenario, if you're working a job right now and you have a chance to open your own business and be your own boss, take that risk. What's the worst case scenario? You go out of business and you go back to working the same job you were just working and you're back in the same boat. Now, the only thing I will say, the caveat to that is being smart with how you open your business and how much money you have. Because if you sink $200,000 into a business right up front and lose your ass, you're kind of, you're kind of, you're, 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 that hurts. 7000 I was smart. I looked around, I shopped, I know what to look for. Uh, I shopped and I found, the right, I, right, I found the right situation. I didn't rush it. Um, and when I did, I pulled the trigger and jumped on it. You can't hesitate. If, you, if you're not going to bet on yourself, nobody else will. That's true. And I think that doesn't just apply to business and life. I think that applies to all kinds of lessons in life, you know. <laughs> I agree, man. And, and life changes or life decisions or new life routes or whatever, you know. Those are very important things to consider. If you have an admiration or a dream, you got to go with that. I, I, I'm a firm believer. Yeah. Um, I've seen too many people I grew up with. And other things that 
stuck doing the same thing. And I, when I talk to them, they, they tell me flat out, they're not happy doing what they're doing. And I know that real life, everybody can't do what they love to do. But you can make decisions now that will pay dividends 10 years down the road that will allow you to do what you want to do. Uh, and I think that's what people are feeling. Everybody's like, oh, it's so far down the road, I can't envision it. So they never start the path. Envision, set goals, and I can't, I can't be a bigger proponent of setting goals. I know it sounds cheesy and cliche. Um, all your teachers told you this, your counselors, who set goals in life, and you're like, yada, 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 whatever. But once I started setting goals for myself in life, it changed my life. Because once I set a, I set a long-term goal, and then you start setting the smaller goals that will allow you to get to that long-term goal. And man, it's crazy how when you have a goal and you know where you're going, how easy. As long as you stay focused, yeah. As long as, as long as you always remind yourself, to, whether it's a journal or whatever, just to revisit your basic ideas. The minute you stop looking at what you're capable with your own ideas and your own creative focus, I think, or whatever your goal focus is, is when you throw it away. So as long as you keep looking at it, it's still an option, right? I, so, yes, sir. I mean, you always keep you always keep looking at it, you know, and it's always going to bring you joy. Keep you always stick with it, you know. I mean, there's no, it's not all easy work. There's hard work to be churned out, but you know, I mean, it but, is. I but, mean, for what but, first year and a half, you guys yeah. used to come to my to Mumbo Gumbo, and I was there all day. It yeah, was me, me and my daughter, literally seven days a week, open to close. I was there at six a.m. and I would be there until eleven p.m. every night, seven days a week. For the most part, in like a year and a half, I maybe had 30 days off that I took off. But other than those 30 days, I was there seven days, all day, every day by myself. And that's what it takes sometimes to realize dreams is a lot of people, they want the dreams, but they don't want the work. Exactly. So They go hand in hand, baby. You can't get away from it. <laughs> and that, and, that, and that's, that's what I mean with you always, if you're, as long as you keep looking at it, it's always going to be there. It's the minute you stop looking at it, it ain't going to be there. So that's for me, I see it in that way, you know. If it starts as an idea, but it takes a long time for the idea to focus, the fact that you're looking at that idea every day, it will take focus. You yes. know, and it, and, it, and it will be obtainable, and it will manifest itself into a beautiful dream that you wanted to And become. it does happen. I, you know, I think these days, everybody has a tendency to look for the quick, the quick and easy route. Um, you know, you just see it. Young we kids. live in a buy and sell <laughs> generation. You got kids these days know, that I want product belts. Yeah. You're not even out of high school. You don't even earn any money and you want a $1,000 belt. You're out of your mind. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. It's a, it's uh, a different generation. Yeah. Than, uh, the diets, <laughs> the quick one week diet. Nothing's quick, nothing's easy. If you want it, you have to work for it. Um, but it's rewarding in its own way when you get to that, when you get to the end of it. It's so much more rewarding. It's like your parents would say, man. That, so, that's the, so that's exactly what I do want to talk to you about. Like uh, your menu and where the way you grew up and the way you've learned like certain, I'm guessing certain cooking techniques, certain like recipes and stuff growing up in your household and then partnering up with your nephew. How much is that is coming from your roots and how much is that coming from your own creative input into like what you do right now? In um, Southern in general is my roots. Um, my nephew doesn't have any real background in thing. He wasn't, a, he didn't really work in the family business that long or anything. So he didn't really get steeped in, in, into Southern cooking. Um, me, it's my roots, like deep down, 
Gotcha. Um, from the toes up. But gumbo, specifically Creole food, has never been a huge part of it. We've done jambalaya, we've done a few, you know, fried fish and all that stuff. That's general southern food, other than jambalaya is Creole specific or Cajun. Um, but gumbo, I what had happened is I started dating a girl maybe 16 years ago. And her her grandma was from Louisiana. And she used to make her grandma's recipe for gumbo. And it was one of my favorite dishes I've ever had. I can only imagine. <laughs> and when I was eating it, I sat to This myself. is warming my soul just hearing you describe the dish. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I mean, I it's mean. so rich, the depths and layers of gumbo. And then just the, the, the versatility of it. You can turn it into seafood. You can make it vegan. You can make it um, sausage, chicken. You, you name it, it can go in gumbo. I talk to Europeans a lot of times, and they and they, a lot of them, you know, they haven't had, like, Creole food or Cajun food. And I would say if you come to the States, it's, like, probably one of our best, like, regional kind of cuisines, only for a specific southeastern region is our Cajun Creole food. And they're like, what could you describe it as? And I'm like, first thing, the only thing that ever kind of remotely comes to my mind is, like, Spanish paella. Paella? I, I say paella is a lot like yes. jambalaya, except for you have a lot more emphasis on spices and herbs than you would in and like seafood a Spanish and paella. And stuff. Yeah, I love Spanish like... paella, by the way. That shit's delicious. Yeah, yeah, it's good, right? And that's you know, the closest thing I can think of that would be it, it go is, to like a gumbo own... jambalaya on yeah. the European sense. Yeah, it's kind of its own, it's kind of its own, in its own little world besides maybe, I don't know, Putanesca, maybe somewhat chipino is some actually yeah. some, chipino is very similar to gumbo minus the rice but the actual broth and what what goes into it sure is very tomato stew yes. you know kind of what anything that's available yeah. in the kitchen cupboard type thing and creole is very um it's influenced heavily by european um cuisine very i i think of Creole food as probably, and Cajun, Creole Cajun food as probably the most American of cuisines. And I say that because America is a country of immigrants. Sure. And the influences that take, take place in Creole Cajun cooking come from all facets of, 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 of our immigrant, waves of immigrants that have come through. I mean, the okra um, is a West African. Yeah, plant, indigenous yeah. to West Africa, that was brought over with the slaves. Sure, um, used filet, ground sassafras is a Native American spice and seasoning. Interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Then you got your um, um, the original Cajuns are displaced French trappers from Canada. When Britain took over Canada from the French, they kicked all the Acadians out. The Acadians migrated to Louisiana. They were dirt poor, so Cajuns. And as far I'm by no means an expert, but by as far as and I've done, but I've done quite a bit of research as far you know more as than what me, I can clearly. <laughs> come up with is Acadians moved down to Louisiana, set up a homestead. They were very poor. They lived in the bayous. They lived in the backwoods, that country. Um, so when you think Cajun food, there's a very big distinction between Cajun and Creole. People tend to think they're the same. Sure. And if you're a native Creole or Cajun, you might get offended or be like they don't know what they're talking about if they think that both are the same. Now, both have almost, when you look at the food, there's almost a Cajun version for every Creole dish. Okay. But the versions are important. 
Spanish influence was heavy in that area, as it used to be a territory of, of Spain. Okay. The French from came in, the, then you had the slaves, and then you had the Native Americans, all contributing to this pot. Um, so in most Cajun foods, since it's the back country, you will not see tomatoes. You won't see butter. You won't see dairy products. Uh, because very hard to come by. That stuff was not being farmed or, or not sourced. Not easy to there. acquire. It had to be shipped from Europe. Sure. Tomatoes were, were usually shipped from Europe. A lot of the dairy was coming from back east or Europe as well. So they consider an easy way to do it is Cajunist country cooking, Creole city cooking. Okay. So fancy smancy and down home cooking. Cajun's sure. down home, Creole's fancy smancy. So, so technically, Cajun <laughs> is a little bit more of like the hunter and gathering type of cuisine from like old tradition, since it's like carried on by the trappers, of the French trappers. Now, everything Native over the Americans, years is kind perhaps. of intertwined. Everything yeah. over the years is really intertwined. But originally, what you would say is like a Cajun gumbo. This is where the gumbos vary differently. You have a Cajun, a Cajun gumbo versus a Creole gumbo. The roux in a Cajun gumbo is made out of an animal fat. Usually, it's made out of lard. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Because that's what they hunted. That's there what they no gathered. There was no butter. There's no butter, so that's what you make your roux with. Um, on the other hand, Creole used butter a lot of times. They would use animal fat sometimes as well, but the vast majority used butter. Gotcha. Yeah. So it would be a lighter roux because butter has a lower smoking point, so you couldn't cook it as long and make it as dark as with lard. Sure. So the Creole gumbo is usually lighter doesn't have that extra depth that that dark roux will give it on, on the Cajun end. So my my personal gumbo, I blend the two. I like the darker roux made with lard for my traditional sauce, um, okay. like a Cajun. But tomatoes, Cajuns didn't really have access to tomatoes. Creoles use their tomato. I like tomatoes in my gumbo, so I add, I add tomatoes to my gumbo. There's also three thickening agents in gumbo. Your roux, your okra, and your filet. All act as thickeners and add their own flavor to it. Gotcha, okay. Um, a lot of people use only one of them. They only use filet. They don't put okra, and some people don't put root um, in theirs. And you can still get away with it by using a ton of filet. Or, you know, uh, other two, you use filet and root, but no okra, or you use okra and root, no filet. It goes on and on how you can do it, but I prefer all three. I like the depths that all three of those things give you. The snap, when you do okra right in gumbo, it has a nice snap. You like it with the crunch? With the crunch. Yeah. Some yeah. Most people will boil it out until it almost disappears. It's yeah, slimy, yeah. and it almost disappears. As a kid, that was my first, uh, you know, introduction, <laughs> introduction to okra, and I was just like, like kids who like hate most of their vegetables, you know. Okra was getting high up on the list of, of a hated vegetable. Between that and lima beans, I, that's, that's kind of like the category okra went for me as a kid. Uh, and and I, I totally understand, and we get that tons at the cart. People are like, I don't like okra. I show them how I do my okra, yeah. and they're like, hey, this is pretty good, <laughs> man. This is snappy. This is not slimy. Um, you know, and the key to that is, you know, hey, fresh is usually nine times out of ten best. Especially with produce. <laughs> Especially with produce. But this is the one exception I make is I like frozen gumbo in my gumbo. I mean, okra in my gumbo because I can add it at the very end right oh, before I and, take it off and, the heat. Right. It doesn't overcook. It just barely thaws out, still has snap and crunch to it when you serve it. Yeah, 
So that is a, that's a hack for anybody out there trying to make some gumbo. Don't use fresh gumbo unless you want to slime fresh your Fresh okra. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yes, fresh okra. You, you use frozen. Yeah, use the frozen okra right, right at the very last. Uh, you know, maybe you do that final yeah. boiling point. That's what I do. I bring it up crunchy. to a heat. I turn the heat off. Then add my okra. By the yep. time I serve it up, put it in a bowl and put it in front of you, that, that okra is completely thawed and ready to go. That's great. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Talk to you about your past, talk to you a little bit here about the present and your recipes and stuff and where you've got those from. You're expanding now, so I guess I want to talk to you, I guess, to some extent. Where do you see yourself here in Portland five years? How's Mumbo Gumbo doing? Your new location? All this stuff. Okay, so the, the plan is, I mean, I've always had a long-term plan um, just because my experience in restaurants has shown me how these small chains I've worked for a few small chains that have grown and I've seen how it's done and, and how they go about doing it okay um, now with that said I don't want to go the traditional route I do not want investor driven company um, for several reasons investors, you want to keep it in the family yes I investors assume, but... are awesome because they'll influx you with cash um, you can grow exponentially you can you can get all the fancy bells and whistles that you want but now you're beholden to your shareholders or your investors and once that happens I've never seen anything good happen of that what usually happens down the line is after a year they start cutting employee benefits because investors want more money then they start cutting employee hours and, and, and service lacks because they're trying to save labor hours so investors can get more money it just because that's becoming an ugly business marriage uh, the yeah. way I, and I mean a lot of those it. a lot of those guys they know it's going out of business they want that company to go out of business. They want to draw as much money over five years out of that business because they invested a hundred thousand and they figure in five years they can pull out two million. Sure. You know, just yeah. as an example, that business that goes out of business, they can use it as a tax write-off drop. They still made more than their their share. Yeah. And they're out. They're out. Service drops. That's why you see all these great concepts. Chili's. Do you remember Chili's back in the day when it first came out? Actually, yeah, yeah. Man. Actually, me and my uh, oldest brother, we used to love them for the baby Chili, back ribs yeah, and stuff. Chili's you know, things were, things were legitimate then. It was legit know. when it first came out. Then yeah. it's gone downhill. Now, look at them. They're, you barely see any anymore. They have a bad reputation. And that's what corporations, investors, and stuff do to businesses. Um, I'm a firm believer in keeping it small, family-owned. Um, if you do expand, I'm, I, I'm a believer as as much as possible to have an employee-owned business. So my model as I grow is, for instance, I just opened my second car, Mumbo Gumbo PDX. Sure. Which is at North Williams at Cartside um, Food Pods, FYI, right by the Moda Center. So if you're catching the Blazer game, swing by for some good eat. That, that, that's a pretty cool new pod there too, because they got like the the RV style like porta potties there that actually have like you know flush like, and with, it's like an airplane. Hey, hey, yeah, yeah, it's got the airplane thing with the fan, and I think there's a little heater in the heater yeah. panel on those. It's things. pretty sharp. It has the full bar. It's it's a porta potty with carpet. I mean, this is like, this, like this is But there's a beer garden there yeah. too, and it has and, a full bar. So it has hard cool. alcohol beer everything um, great location I was able to do that because of the first year um, the success of the business I, I mean I, I was very surprised to be honest with the way this thing has taken off um, so the second location though did you did you have that that quad that neighborhood of Portland in mind or were you just kind of looking for a spot to put number two well I, I, I had that specific neighborhood in mind um, 
not necessarily that 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 spot. I was thinking more when I was thinking about it in my head. I was thinking more northeast, Kingsworth, Alberta, Mississippi, somewhere in there. But this fell in my totally. lap. Yeah. Um. So I jumped on it, and it's ended up being a really good location for me. I mean, um, I used to live up in that neighborhood five years straight. So awesome little neighborhood. It's that. hidden <laughs> back there too. You think that it's like all industrial and businesses and stuff? You go down that street, it's a whole neighborhood out there to support you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it's a it's a good spot up there. I mean, I like I like Nopo. I like Northeast. It's good. It's been it, it's yeah. been it's been very good. So now with the two, I want to stamp at right now. Whenever you expand as quickly as we did, your number one problem becomes staffing getting the sure. right people in place, training. So now I don't want to put any more on anybody else's plate. I want to get my people trained up, ready to go, say for next year maybe. And then I want to start looking for a commissary kitchen out here with a small dining room. Uh, that way I can run a Southern style breakfast like my family's place back in California. And okay. I'll probably call it that stagecoach. It'll so, be you, a so, you, so, you, so you want to start focusing on brunch now? Well, just well, just for that one location because it kind yeah. of works because I need a commissary kitchen. I'm doing more more volume out of those carts than I can keep up with cooking in the cart. Like we can't keep exactly. up with the sauces and all this stuff in that such small space. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to be looking for a commissary kitchen. Now I could go just commissary kitchen, produce, deliver to the carts every day, but then I'm paying extra rent. Everything is extra. It's just going out. Nothing's yeah. coming in. If I can get a a space with a kitchen small 10 table dining room and serve breakfast from 7 a.m. till 3 yeah the building pays for itself pays for its own labor now i have a commissary kitchen may, may, and knowing that food out there what we do i mean my dad's the original stagecoach has become a, like a city land naturally every time you buy something you want to see you want to yes. buy something with the intention of being able to make food, money with southern that food with is, said purchase southern food is such a winner it, it, when it's done right oh it's yeah such a winner you see um um, screen door over on Burnside. They're yeah. wrapped around the building an hour before. Here on the West it. Coast too, people love Southern food oh. because it's very exotic for us. So it's exotic. <laughs> it's fat. It's down home. You know, there's a lot of healthy people out there, and this health craze. They're saying this is all bad and stuff, but there's still a lot of people that are just like, man, just give me some good chicken fried steak with some country gravy. I'm ready to go. Exactly. You know, because it rains so much here. You know, I, I imagine even more so here. We were into it here in the Northwest than, than like the Cali. Oh, the hearty food. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, because, you know, I mean, we do get four or five months of rain. You know, today's raining, so, you know, it's like I wouldn't mind, like, you know, just some biscuits and gravy today. So, that, I mean, that that, kind of that's the plan for growth right now. And then over the next five years, I would like to maybe get one to two more carts in Portland in addition to that commissary kitchen. And then from there, my options, I'm thinking from that point, there's a couple of ways I can go. I'm thinking either Seattle or Sacramento. So either go up to Seattle because it's the next logical big city close to Portland. So I have some rank, name recognition there because I get quite a few folks from Seattle. Um, so it would be a nice soft landing space for me. Sure. Then again, Sacramento is my hometown. I'd like to get back eventually, back closer to family. Um, so... I mean, if everything worked perfectly, my daughters would come take over this Portland one. Be able, I would be able to t train them to take over the Portland, um, get a house out here where they can stay, run the business, and I can go back to California and start a, a mumbo gumbo in Sacramento and um, move to the coast somewhere. 
which is you know what I would like to do. Well, that's great, man. And I, I'm, I, I want to take my hat off of your success. It's been great knowing you over the years. And, you know, I don't know when was the first time I met you, how deep in you were then. It, it, I think we were only a, maybe, what, seven, eight months in. I, I was still pretty new, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you guys have been coming in. I mean, I really want to say that none of this happens without loyal people who get excited about what you do. And, and I mean, you... Vanessa, there's a guy named Anthony, Joe, I can go on and on with names of customers that have gone out of their way to support me, shout me out on Instagram, uh, rave about my food, the reviews, um, that has, you know, that directly has led to a couple of big awards that we've won, we've won, um, Yelp last year did a top 100 restaurants in the United States. I got number 24 on that list. Oh, wow. And, in and the that United was, States. Yeah, and that was based off of um, Yelp reviews. Yeah. And that's how good my Yelp reviews and the people that support me make me make me look, man. I, they, they, they do. They work hard for me, and I appreciate it. I couldn't do it without um, the support. Um, also won Best Soup. Business Insider gave me the Best Soup of 2019 in Oregon. They gave me the Best restaurant um, Takeout Restaurant in Oregon. I won Best New Restaurant in Portland by Portland Business Journal. I remember that one. I remember that. I think that's right about when I first met you. Yeah, well, I've quite a few awards in that first year, man, and I've been blessed. It's been really awesome to kind of see this grow and kind of, it's a trip to see what you thought about. And now what it's become. Yeah, to see it come come into fruition and become concrete. It's, It's an awesome feeling, man. I mean, I, I got to a point right before I moved where I just I couldn't stand restaurants anymore. I, I saw the politics when you get into hiring management. Oh yeah, well, I um, mean it becomes a company like any other bigger company. Exactly. You know? it, it's just it's unfortunate because you have a passion and a love for something like food, but then you watch a big company and just kind of, for lack of a word, take a shit on it. Exactly, <laughs> and it's profits over people. Yeah. But, um, you know, and, and I think you can still make profit. We're in business for profit, but. I think companies are just exorbitantly greedy. They're, they're just taking more in, and at the same time I see them cut from their employees, cut pension plans. You know, I have a theory that some of that is because when you have people at the higher ups in like bigger expanded companies, they're not they they're not getting their hands dirty and they're not spending time in the kitchen, so they don't have a connection with the food and then they don't have a connection with the people. with the people. Yeah, and they, so, and they don't. It's yeah. all dollars. All they yeah. see is the numbers. You watch it on all that from a distance. <laughs> yeah, they see they get that P and L once a month and they look at those numbers and that's all they care about. Right, it's that bottom number, net profit for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a shame. It, it made me really kind of dislike the business I'd grown up knowing my whole life. But it's been refreshing to come up, open my own thing. I mean, I, I won't, um, you know, I'm still trying to perfect it. I'm still learning a lot of things as an owner that I wasn't exposed to even as a district manager. Uh, but I want to do the best for my people within reason what I can do. Um, so instead of investors, I, I've started to where when I opened my second cart, I promoted to uh, managing partners at each cart. And what that entails is me giving them, you know, a base salary so they have a minimum that they're going to make every month. Of course. Um, but on top of that minimum, there's a incentive of or 40% of the profit, whichever is greater. 
So if we have a slow month, you still get your minimum, 4,000 a month. That's okay. your minimum, you're good. If we have an awesome month and 40% of profit would be 6,000, and I paid you your 4,000 over the month, I owe you two more thousand dollar bonus on top of it. That's great, I mean, um, that's a great position for somebody that wants to get into management. Exactly, well, it's, yeah, it, it, it's to I mean, ensure. Once again, the management that also has a, a passion and connection with the food. Yeah. At, least, at least that's the way I see it, but. And that's what I, I think like you're buying with this that. Is, this is kind of your machine. But yeah, <laughs> and, and it's kind of you're buying that loyalty and ownership for it. Is hey, I'm going to pay you well. I'm going to take care of you. But I need you to treat this as if it's your business, not as if it's just a job. I want you to treat it because if we go up in sales, you get a fat, nice little check in, the, in, in, the, in your pocket at the end of the month. Right. Um, and I want that because I understand that as I grow, I'm not going to be able to be in the carts. I can barely be in both my carts right now. I spend most of the morning just shopping for these things. Um, then running around doing administrative work at home and stuff. I can barely get into my carts these days. And I'm seeing the problem. So I know as I grow, it's going to be even harder. So yeah. I, I have to be able to get... You, you, got, you got to knock that... I got to have the, people the, I can the, trust. Wait, 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 that, well. Yeah, and as, as things get crazier and more chaotic, you got to make it more comfortable so it stays the way you want it to be, I think. Exactly. Like you don't want to overgrow um, all those things. But, you know, I'm not greedy. I'm not... Um, I'm not looking to grow overnight. I'm not, I don't need a $2 million investor so I can open up 10 of these things in a blink of an eye. Uh, I'm playing the long game. I, I, I hope to have 10 of these when I leave it to my children. And I hope that when my children are done with it, they have 30 of them. And then at that point, some big company will probably come in and say, hey, we'll give you $8 million to get the hell away and get out of here and give us the recipes. Yeah. And we'll say, okay, we're out yeah. of here. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful gift and that's a... Wonderful insight into the future, honestly. That's kind of what I was asking. Um, is there anything you could say that you would do to summarize where you see or what closing message you would want to give to the dream at this point? Closing message, man, is, is don't compare yourself to other people. I think part of it before I opened my own business was always looking at other owners of restaurants I have worked for and saying, I can't be that, or I'll never be like him. Or the self-doubt and, yeah, self and, and, and that critic in your and head, I guess. You know yeah. what? There's a million ways. The old saying, man, these sayings have been around for years because there's truth to them. There's a million ways to skin a cat. You don't have to run that restaurant exactly like that, man. You can run, There's a hundred different ways you can run a successful restaurant. Be you. Be genuine. Care about the food care about your product, have a legit plan, and check in with reality from time to time. Um, I think some people get their dreams and they get their heads so far in the clouds that yeah. they don't see some, down, uh, so, some pitfalls and other things that are ahead of them. I think you have to stay grounded while also keeping your heads in the clouds. You gotta keep your feet on the ground at the same time. And I think, you know, you go for it. You set goals, you achieve them, and, and, and and you keep working towards it. You may never get there, but believe me, if you started at point A and the finish line is point Z, even if you don't get to point Z, you get to point O. That's a long, that's a long ways. That's, that's a lot a, of progress. And, and that's a lot of experience to tell your kids or your grandkids. Yes. So I think that's good. And that's my biggest thing is just say, be smart, learn what you want. Um, you know, don't, don't be scared to do what you need to do, but also don't be a dummy. Do your homework, 
do, do your research, make sure you know what you're getting into, have a solid business plan, um, talk to people, don't try to take the easy way around things all the time. I worked as a, I worked in the family restaurant for 15 years and then I worked for other people as a district manager and regional for 10 more years. I mean, that's 20 years. So a lot of my success is, is my customers, my guests, my employees, but a lot of it is the homework and the foundation I laid ahead of time. I didn't try to do it easy. I wanted to go see what these people saw. Every place I worked at, I found out 20 new things that I need to avoid when I opened my own business. Ah, uh -huh, that's funny. <laughs> and I found out 10 new things that I needed to do Potential when I opened pitfalls. Yeah, and I found great things and great systems that work really well. And over the years, I've amassed, this is good, this is bad. This is good, this is bad. Pretty soon, you know, when I opened this, I, I had a list of things I won't do or mistakes I won't make because I've seen other people make them already. And then I had a list of great things that were done by my other bosses and stuff that I was like, hey, I'm going to use that. That, that. That's good thinking. So I guess with all that in mind, let's uh, say stick to your dreams. Don't be afraid to be original. Scared money don't win, baby. Yeah. <laughs> scared, scared money don't win. Closing statements for this week on Life Stamps. Thank you very much, Brandon. Thank you, Tyson. <laughs> I appreciated the time. And I look forward to, to listening to this on, on, on um, when it goes live. Yeah, yeah. Well, Spotify. <laughs> right on, brother. I'll be there. All right. Bye-bye, <laughs> everyone. All right, guys. So I hope you enjoyed my interview this week with Brandon from Mama Gumbo. It was great asking him all the questions and finding out details and stuff with him personally. I will be back again next Sunday night with a new guest, a new life stamp. And as always, if you'd like to support my show, there's a listener support link in the description. Or you can email me any of your questions, lifestamps2021 at gmail.com. I'd be more than happy to address any questions you listeners may have for me or my show on the next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye.